as a goalie, there are two, three, at most four of you on a team. And whereas the forward position, yes, there are always going to be, you know, your top three. There's a lot more rotation. And in any given game, if you have 12 forwards, there's a chance that all 12 will see the ice. As a goalie, more often than not, it's only one goalie that ever sees the ice in a game. So the the issue, well, not the issue, the, the thought process really comes down to, am I so hurt that I can't play? Um, and do I really want to give up my opportunity and let somebody else get in there and I hope that our team wins because you always want your team to win, but if the coach all of a sudden turns and thinks that kid's going to give us a better opportunity to win, then there goes your, your opportunity. My name is Molly Tissenbaum. I'm a former Harvard hockey goalie. I work at the Sports Innovation Lab as a research analyst, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week I'm interviewing Molly Tissenbaum who's a former Harvard hockey goalie, a current research analyst at the Sports Innovation Lab in Boston, Massachusetts, and someone who has really struggled with post-concussion syndrome uh, throughout her hockey career. And she's going to start off today by kind of taking us through the first concussion of her concussion history, and then we'll kind of dive into the other concussions and uh, subsequent symptoms that she uh, experienced after that. So Molly, thanks for coming on the show today. And yeah, can you take us through kind of like where your concussion history started? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Um, my first concussion was, uh, when I was 13 years old and like you said, I'm, I'm a goalie and my first concussion was a result of, uh, a shot that I took from a friend of mine actually, who was a couple of years older than me. He was trying out somebody else's stick and, he took a, a snapshot from the top of the circle and it hit me square in the face, right where the two bars come uh, down the center of the goalie mask. And I, uh, I wasn't wearing a, a pro level mask at the time because I was 13. And so nobody had the thought that I should be protecting my brain from, you know, shots that are coming that hard because I was 13. But um, I was also training with boys who were two and three years older than me. So they were already, you know, bigger and stronger and faster. Um, and the, the junior level mask is just made of like hard plastic. And whereas a, a senior or pro level mask is made of fiberglass and like Kevlar. So that's why they're so much more expensive and they're so much more protective. Um, but that shot sort of, it hit me, it dented the cage. Um, it ended up bruising my face and, um, yeah, that was sort of the the first one. I guess like when when I saw that you talked about the junior level mask, I'm like, why have a junior level mask if they're like inadequate? Uh, I guess except for the price, maybe it could be like a barrier to participation for some people. Yeah, I think the price is definitely one of the one of the reasons that they they differentiate between junior and pro level masks. I think the other reason is probably because. Um, most kids who are using junior level masks are still playing against kids who are the same age as them. And 
for the most part, they're not shooting hard enough or moving fast enough that they would need a pro-level mask. But um, that being said, I also didn't have that mask fitted to me properly. Um, I just sort of bought the mask off the rack and put it on and, you know, okay, the, the guy at the hockey store told me it, it fit properly. And so that was all we really knew. Um, but part of what I've found subsequently is really important about buying goalie masks is getting it fitted properly because not everybody's head fits the, fits the same into the mask. And especially for female goalies like who have to wear their hair in a ponytail, um, it moves the plate at the back of the helmet. And so if your hair isn't in the same spot or, you know, I have curly hair, somebody else has straight hair. If somebody hasn't fit the mask to you properly, you're putting yourself in a lot more danger than you would be otherwise. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I'm a, I come from a football background and they talk about the fit of the helmet being important for, you know, preventing concussions. And when I think back to the week that I had my first concussion before the second impact syndrome a week later, I actually got a haircut that week. So I'm thinking yeah. that my helmet might not have been fitting me properly. Not that that was actually the reason or not, but it could have been. Yeah, um, absolutely. So how did you kind of work around that? So like, can you explain to the audience, maybe there's a female hockey goalie listening to this and can you explain like the proper fit and what kind of tactics you've learned, like to put your hair in the same place every time and stuff like that? So the, the first thing that, that I would say is when you get your mask fitted, make sure that you're, you're doing it with somebody who's reputable and not just some, you know, 18 or 19 year old kid who's working at a hockey store. Um, that was my mistake the first time that I had this, that I got this mask when I was, um, I'm going to say I was 11 or 12. Um, and again, neither me nor my parents knew that it was going to matter that I didn't have the mask fitted. But the other thing that I would say is, um, don't necessarily be worried about what your hair looks like. And I know that sounds silly, but, um, I've met a lot of girls and myself included, you know, how you look and the swag and how you carry yourself. Yeah, that's a part really of it. Important. Um, but what I found subsequently is if you leave an inch between the bottom of the, the plate on the back of the helmet and where you tie your hair up, you're going to be a lot safer because it won't interact with um, the helmet at all. Okay, good advice. Uh, so what were your symptoms after this first concussion and, like, how long did they last for? So immediately the puck hit me and I was – I was very disoriented. Um, and like I said, it was a friend of mine who hit me with the puck and he came over right away when he saw that he, he, the way he tells it, he knew that the, the shot got away from him before he even released the puck. And so he was already on his way over to, to apologize to me. Um, and when he came over to ask if I was okay, the, the first thing that I asked him was if the puck went in the net. <laughs> and once he said, you know, no, you made the save. I just, um, He's, he was more freaked out, I think, than I was. I just was really confused. And I actually was smart enough to take myself off the ice that time um, because I wasn't necessarily in pain, but I knew that there was something that wasn't right. Um, so I went off the ice. I called my mom, and I was like, I got hit in the head. I'm feeling really weird. Um, can you come pick me up? And so this was because I was training at school. So she came to pick me up. Um, I had been sitting with an ice pack on my face because the mask had moved and it had bruised my cheekbone. So one of the teachers um, brought me an ice pack and said, you know, while you're waiting for your mom, you should throw some ice on it. Um, 
so I had that bruise on my cheek, which was really, really, really cute. Um, but the headache sort of lasted, I want to say about a week. And then I didn't really have any other symptoms at that point. The, I mean, the first concussion, thankfully, wasn't the worst of them. Um, so, yeah, I think I was out for two weeks and then did the return to play protocol. You know, you, you walk, you work out, you skate with no, with no contact. Um, and then if you've got no symptoms at any point, then you can return to full practice. So a couple questions about this. So did you guys have a hockey rink like at your school? We had a rink that was just around the corner from our school. Yeah. So I went to uh, a high school called Peak and we are, we were they're now Blythe Academy, um, an elite athlete school. So built into the day was an hour of sports specific training and a workout. So it was for me, I, I was there from grade eight to grade 12. It was four extra hours a week that I was on the ice with a goalie coach. And because there were very few um, girls hockey players, I got to train with the boys. So that was uh, obviously very helpful. And um, yeah, so the rink was around the corner from us. It wasn't on the campus. That's really cool. I've never heard of like a school like that. I guess it's kind of like IMG Academy in a way, but not as... The uh, the idea was to replicate um, a prep school environment in Canada um, because there aren't that many of the of, of the prep schools in Ontario. Um, so we competed against some of the really big name prep schools um, in Toronto, St. Michael's College, which is one of the boys' schools. Um, we competed against Appleby. That's another one of the big prep schools. So it was basically it was an attempt to be a prep school. Okay, so yeah. When did you start playing hockey? Like, what what made you like you were just really good at goalie, and this was like I want to play in college, and that like going to this school was like the progression, or <laughs> what? Uh, I started playing hockey when I was, I think I was six, um, and at the time I was the defenseman because um, playing in house league, um, there's a goalie. Every team gets a goalie bag, and every week it rotates, so that year and the next year. So when I was six and seven, I played, you know, once when I was six and once when I was seven. And then when I was eight, I, um, this is actually one of my favorite stories. My mom took her skates and my skates to get sharpened at our, our local, um, skate sharpening shop. And we both had pink laces in our skates cause they did a, a breast cancer awareness thing. So my mom bought, you know, pink laces for both of us. And, the guy who had been sharpening our skates for years, his name is Jeff Potter. He's still a very, very good friend of mine. Um, he said to my mom, um, has Molly ever been a goalie? And I was standing with her as this precocious eight-year-old. And I said to him, yep, I've played, I've been a goalie. And he said, did you like it? And I said, yeah, it was fun. Meanwhile, keep in mind, I've only ever done this twice, but right. yeah, it was, I was basically an expert. Um, <laughs> And so he said to my mom and to me, I have this, this hockey team of nine and 10 year olds and we have a training camp coming up next week and we don't have our goalies. Would you want to come out and be a goalie? Sure. Why not? So I went out with this team and the deal was I can play. Um, I would play for this training camp as a goalie cause they didn't have any goalies yet. And then I would play as a defenseman during that year and go to practice once a week for goalie specific like practice with the two older goalies. 
So that was my first year um, playing. And my first game that I started, I lost 18 nothing. Oh. And my parents, <laughs> my parents say, um, when I came out of the out of the locker room after the game, they were, you know, both of them were really worried. They were going to, you know, pick up my confidence and pat me on the back and job well done and whatever. And my dad said to me, so like, how was it? What do you think? And I apparently had a grin ear to ear and just said, I can't wait to do that again. <laughs> and they were, they were both a little bit concerned. And um, also I think a little bit relieved that I hadn't taken it to heart, but that's how I got started. Well, it's good that you weren't hard on yourself in the beginning. Yeah, I, that that came later on. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably like a learned a learned thing to like beat yourself up over things. I used to do the same stuff. Yeah, it's not exactly the best practice, but I mean, it's common. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely not productive always, but no, that's for sure. So back to the concussion. You guys had an athletic trainer that kind of worked with you to get you back on the ice after this concussion, after the first concussion? Like no, the, the return first concussion to play? Was, was basically just flying solo. Um, I think that at my school had a, had a return to um, play policy, and so they were the ones who sort of took the lead on making sure that I was um, functional enough to go back. But Like who was they, your coach or – yeah, the coach, the coaches at school. Okay. And and they had, I think, I'm pretty sure they had to run it by the teachers too. Um, but yeah, those they they were the ones. The the staff at school were the ones who were instrumental in making sure that that time anyway I was okay. Okay. Uh, and then concussion number two came a couple years later, right? So can you kind of take us through that one and maybe what was different about it? Yeah. So concussion number two was when I was a freshman in high school. And we were in a, a playoff game that determined whether or not our team went to the provincial championship tournament. And I was one of two goalies on the team. I was the older of the two, and I had been the starting goalie all year. And in the second period of a 0-0 game, um, somebody flicked a puck at me. And so I went down into a butterfly, which just means dropping to my knees, to try and catch the puck. And a girl on the other team decided that the best way to try and knock the puck in the net was to basically swing at it like a baseball bat. And she missed the puck, but she made contact with my head. And the, the way that she hit me was on the side of my head. So it wasn't necessarily that again, the mask wasn't on right or anything like that. It was just the way that she hit me. I was in a very vulnerable position. Um, and because I had had that previous concussion, I knew as soon as the stick hit me that there was something wrong. Um, I was dizzy. I had a headache. I sort of struggled to get up. Um, but I also didn't take myself out of the game because our team needed to win. And I was I was the guy. And that was sort of that was a, a decision that I made in the moment that wasn't necessarily advisable and I would never advise anybody to do that but um yeah I stayed in the game and somehow we ended up winning because we ended up playing in the provincial championships but um I didn't take care of it the way that I did the first one and that was that was the one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made because of the aftermath of that one so between 
the first concussion and the second co- concussion, did you get a new mask, number one? Yes, I did. Okay. And, like, what are some of the common, like, how do, right, when goalies get concussions, is it normally because they get hit by a puck in the face, or is it because, like, a stick, or getting hit by another player? Like, do you know, like, which one's more prevalent? I, I would imagine that it's not um, puck or stick related normally. Um, when I've seen goalies get injured, it's a result of um, a player driving hard towards the net and a goalie being in the butterfly position. So again, that means that I am on my knees and somebody's moving full speed towards me. And that often results in whether the defenseman trips the guy or whether he loses an edge or just looks up too late. Um, it's usually either a hip or a knee to the head. Um, so yeah, the, the, the way that I got my two concussions, I think were rare for goalies. I don't know of that many other goalies who have been hit with pucks or sticks that have ended up in concussions. Right. And I know we started off this interview talking about ice guardians, the documentary on Netflix. And one of the, the, the main things I took out of that documentary was like how fast hockey is. I'm like, you think about football like you can only run so fast as a human right. being, but put put skates on that. Like you're increasing that speed, and obviously the force of those collisions. You know, yeah. as the faster you go. So I'm like, it's like insane that more people don't get like more severely hurt. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, and it's and it's amazing to me that more goalies don't get hurt because again that that instance where somebody's driving the net that hard and a goalie is in that very vulnerable position happens a lot. Um, and I think that it's it's very lucky that more people don't end up concussed and injured that way. But I guess that's why most professionals are professionals because they're steady on their skates more so than anybody else. Right. It's crazy. So yeah. back to concussion number two. You, you decided to stay in, in the game and you didn't take care of it the way you did the first time, which is what, you know, which is a mistake that both of us have obviously <laughs> made. Uh, yeah. So can you kind of take us through the symptoms and everything that you had from the second concussion and how long it took you to, to get back? Yeah. So like I said, I was immediately dizzy and had a headache. Um, and once the game was over, um, I, I told my parents that I had like, there was something wrong again, I don't think that I necessarily called it a concussion at the time because I knew that I was going to have to play again in two weeks in this provincial tournament. Um, but I think my parents and I both knew that, that it was. Um, so in the first week or so, I don't think I went to practice um, because I was still nauseous and dizzy um, and I had a headache. Um, but the the real sort of symptoms started after I decided to play two weeks later. Um, I didn't tell my coach that I had a concussion. And so when we started in that tournament, he said, okay, Molly, back out on the ice. And that was the thing that really set me back. And I ended up, I'm going to say for a month after that, when our season ended, I, I had a headache. I was dizzy. Um, but the real sort of the real impact was in my academics. Um, I was always a, a very good student and I went from almost a straight A student to getting C's and my, I had two teachers who 
called my parents and said, you've got to come in to talk to us because we don't know what's going on. And we either somebody is doing her work for her or there's something going on because this isn't her quality of work. And I don't think I was back to, I'll call it normal, back to almost 100% until six months later. Wow. And that was, yeah, that was insane. So when this teacher kind of like called you out, like how did that make you feel? You know, like did you feel like guilty or ashamed or? Well, <laughs> he was actually, so he was a, an elite level baseball player, played in college, played a little bit of pro baseball. So I think he knew that there was something going on. So he didn't call me out in front of the class, which was good. But um, he called me into his office after class one day and was just like, Molly, this this math test, like, what's going on? You, you don't normally do this. And he showed me and walked me through it. And there were just, there were places where I just like stopped trying to work through to an answer. And I said to him, I don't know what's going on. Like maybe, maybe I just don't get it. Um, but when he spoke to my parents and got the full story, um, he said, okay, we'll, we'll scratch this test from your grades and you'll write it again in a few weeks. But I guess, yeah, I guess embarrassed would be the right word because I knew, I think I knew that I hadn't made the right decision in continuing to play and that I was going to have to deal with that. So it certainly wasn't one of those things where it was like, oh, it's such a relief that he now, you know, now he knows. It was sort of, um, it was sort of embarrassing that I had made that decision and that other people were now noticing and it wasn't just me that had the headache. Yeah. It was kind of almost like a, not an excuse, but like, I don't know, like reaffirming your thoughts kind of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, that's definitely what it was. And, and, and as an athlete too, like it's easier for someone else to be like, you know what? Like you should probably take it easy because something's obviously wrong as opposed to you being the one to say that. Oh, absolutely. It's always it's always easier when when you grow up as an athlete and you're and you're used to this structure and this hierarchy of you've got your captains and your coaches and your strength and conditioning coaches and all these people who are imposing structure and order on you. It's always easier for somebody to say, oh, you broke your leg, so you should sit out. Um, but it's really, really hard to say there's something wrong with me and I need to take the time to heal. And that's something that I think a lot of athletes struggle with, whether it's a concussion or another injury. The, the realization that there's something that I need to admit to is often a really difficult thing for athletes. So for this concussion, you said that you had like a discussion with your parents that something was not right. Yeah. But, but you guys didn't like, you guys never got checked out or anything or you just... I don't think so. Uh, it's, this is this is the result of post-concussion. I really don't remember clearly um, what the course of action was, but I don't think there was any sort of like doctor intervention. Um, I think at that point, so this is like nine years ago, I think the, the going wisdom was you know, when you're concussed, there's nothing really that you can do about it except sit in the dark and wait for it to stop hurting. So we sort of just went with that. Um, it's a different story now. There are all kinds of different treatments that people are trying that seem to work. But um, 
I think at that point it was just a, an issue of making sure my neck wasn't sore and waiting for the, the symptoms to go away. Right. Yeah, because I just think back, because we got hurt around the same time. I think I was a little older than you, but my injury was 10 years ago also. Yeah. And I, I told my, my mom that my head was hurting me really bad. But this is like 2007, like right yeah. around the time where people started actually like talking about concussions and like taking them seriously. Yeah. So I was like the word concussion well, came out of my mom's mouth. She's like, maybe you have a concussion. You should go talk to your athletic trainer. I'm like, nah, I'm too tough for that. So yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, I was just curious to see like what that dynamic was. Um, are there any rules in place to protect goalies in hockey or? Uh yeah, so the crease, the like the blue paint, is technically the goalie's space. And unless the puck is in the crease, you're not allowed to be there. Um, you're not allowed to interfere with the goalie in any way. Um, but I think a lot of the, the, the vulnerability, again, comes from the fact that in most, if not all, scenarios, you're standing almost flat-footed while people are moving at full speed towards you. And your job is to keep the puck out of the net. And so even if there's there's bodies coming at you, which is one of the things they teach, you know, if, if you want to score goals, you got to go to the net. Um, I think that's where most of the injuries come from. It's not necessarily um, that, you know, you're getting hacked at in the crease or sat on because somebody's in front of you, although that d- definitely does happen. Um, it's much more, I think, a function of the, the vulnerability and the, the nature of the beast in terms of, you're very flat-footed with very high high speeds and strong athletes coming at you. I think that's probably where most of it comes from. Right, you're like a bowling pin just waiting for like these yeah. bowling balls that come into the Yeah, and and all it takes is is one one person to, you know, catch an edge or to step on a stick or to try and stop and and miss and they come right like right into you. Right. So obviously you're a very smart person, uh, very intelligent. You went to Harvard and you said during this six month time span from concussion number two, you really, you were struggling. So how were you able to like keep your grades up to the point where, you know, you didn't ruin your chances of getting into a school like Harvard? Uh, well, I'm as amazed as anybody that I was able to do that. So we'll start with that. But, (laughs) um, I, I think that I was really lucky that I had teachers who had been athletes so I think they sort of understood where I was coming from in terms of having this this concussion. But I think that the main thing was that my family was supportive in sort of, we'll figure it out. And um, I think that, again, my teachers knowing that I was trying to be a Division One hockey player and that I wanted to be a student athlete, um, there were a couple of assignments they just said we're scrapping it and you'll you'll write it again at the end of the year so um i think that was probably the saving grace for me yeah i think that's that's completely true and but unfortunately like if you go to a school where maybe your teachers never played a sport in their life and they don't understand or they think that you're just trying to get out of the work you might not have that support system but i know there's like rules and laws like in place that you're supposed to be able to get you know, extra time or help, you know, when you're diagnosed with a concussion. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I could absolutely see, um, teachers at, 
at schools. Even even if they were athletes, I, I would assume that there are some teachers who just, you know, it's not fair to give one kid more time than another, which, again, I don't necessarily agree with. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a lucky thing for me that I had access to these people who had, for the most part, been college athletes and understood not just the physical injury part, but also the pressure that we all put on ourselves to be a student athlete. Um, and I think the other part of it was for me, um, all of my teachers knew that I was very interested in my academics and that I wanted to go to the best academic institution I could find that offered women's hockey. And so I think for them, it was sort of, um, not necessarily, they all went above and beyond, not necessarily their, their duty, but I think they felt that it was on them to help me get there. And again, that makes me feel incredibly lucky because I could have ended up with teachers who just said, no, you, you failed this math test. And so your A is now a C and deal with it. Right. But I, thankfully that's not where I was and they helped me that way. So, yeah, that's great. Um, so during this time, like what treatments did you receive to try to alleviate some of your symptoms or was it just simply time and rest? It was mostly time and rest. I, I saw my, my muscle activation therapist a lot um, to sort of alleviate the, the stress on my neck and my shoulders. But other than that, it was just sort of rest and nothing too crazy in terms of um, exercise because once our season was over, um, I took, I think, probably a month or two away from training and playing. Um and in that time, it was just a lot of, you know, rest, don't do anything strenuous, try and focus on getting your academics together and hope that it, hope that it gets better, which thankfully it, it eventually did. Uh, before we get too far, I, I want to point out to the listeners that you're also the valedictorian of your school. So that was <laughs> very – after going through what you went through, it's a, an incredible feat. Um, right. But what is a muscle activation therapist? So muscle activation therapy is um, a type of, I guess it's a type of physio treatment um, that is based on the idea that the body is a closed system. And if there's pain or um, muscle imbalances, something else is going to have to compensate. So when I first started seeing this muscle activation therapist, I was having knee pain. And when he went through and checked they literally checked from head to toe. He found out that what was causing this knee pain was that my ankle on the opposite side was not moving the way that it should. And so as a result, my, my knee was taking the brunt of the impact when I was skating and training and running and doing all those things that you have to do as an athlete. So um, the basic idea with muscle activation therapy is if you can balance the, the closed system of the body, you're going to reduce the amount of pain because you're going to reduce the, the number of times that, you know, if you can't activate your bicep, something else is going to have to compensate if you're going to pick something up. Right. Right. So if you can balance out all of those sort of little imbalances, your body's going to be able to function the way that it's designed to function. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. So you went through all that. You eventually overcome these symptoms and you get into Harvard, you become the valedictorian and then concussion number three happens. So can you take us through that one? Yeah. So concussion number three was 
my my only that was not sports related. Um, it, on move-in weekend of what should have been my sophomore year, I was uh, in the car with my parents in Boston, and we were coming back from I think the Home Depot. We had gone to to get some stuff for my room, and we had been sitting at a red light. The light changed to green for us. My dad was driving. My mom was in the front passenger seat. I was in the back passenger seat, and we my dad pulled out into the intersection to make a left turn and I looked up and out of my window I I had been on the phone with my aunt and I just remember seeing this this dark colored jeep that was just barreling at us and it was very obvious to me that it wasn't going to stop and I tried to say something and apparently all that came out was that I yelled and the car the the car that hit us took the bumper off of the car in the middle lane and then hit us and our car tipped up on its side came back down um airbags deployed the front wheel of um the driver's side ended up parallel to the ground because we had hit the um the median and yeah that was uh that was that was how that happened. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty scary. So was it like an immediate, like just like the other ones, like was it immediately you knew like something's not right again or? Oh, yeah. that was The, the first thing that, so car hits us, um, the first thought for me was that's the end of my career. And before I could even verbalize that, my parents both turned around and started yelling at me that I had to get out of the car. And so it sort of slipped to the back of my mind at that point. Um, But as soon as I got out of the car and we were sitting waiting for the the fire truck and the ambulance that were luckily down the street from us, um, I said to my mom, I I can't, I can't even explain what's going on in my head, but there's, this is not, this is not okay. Um, So the ambulance got there and they put me in a neck brace. They taped me to a backboard took me in the ambulance to um, Boston Children's, I believe. And at that point, my head wasn't killing me. Um, it was mostly my neck and my back that I was concerned about. Um, so when the doctors at, at the hospital saw me, the things that they were checking for were broken spine, broken neck. And thankfully, neither of those things was there. And so when they discharged me, you know, they said to me, if your head gets worse in the next week, see your doctor. Okay. Um, Lo and behold, three days later, I can't leave my room without a hat and sunglasses on and I'm nauseous and um, I can't go to class. And at that point, um, I went and saw my my academic advisor and I was like, look, I I know I have a concussion. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to to handle trying to keep up with academics this way. And she basically said to me, um, you know, if you had been, if you had fallen over drunk and hit your head, the college wouldn't be very sympathetic to you needing to take a medical leave of absence, but you were in a car accident and this isn't something that you can fake because even if say it takes three weeks for you to get better to a point where you can go to class, you're three weeks behind. And there's very, very little chance you'll be able to catch up on those three weeks. So my advice to you would be take the year off, get better, and come back and start your sophomore year when you feel that you've healed. 
So three weeks into school, I was I was packing a suitcase and I headed home for the year. Well, that's terrible that you had to leave school, but it also reminds me of like it's another example of having positive support along the way, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I have had friends who have had concussions and who have stayed at school and it was a horrible way to have to take a year off and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But the fact that I had this advisor who was smart enough and aware enough to know that even if I healed instantly, I was still going to be behind enough that I wasn't going to be able to enjoy the academic experience, let alone skate or play or be social. Um, That was hugely important because again, I have friends who have also been concussed during their time as students and have suffered to stay at school just because nobody gave them that like, Hey, this is what I would, if it was me, I would want somebody to tell me this. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I like that. And you're like you said, like not everyone has, you know, that kind of support system. So you eventually take a leave of absence in your home. So what are like your thoughts, feelings, and emotions at this time? Like I'm sure your uh, FOMO radar was like going all, oh all over the place. Yeah. So can you take us through that? Cause I'm sure people listening to this are, are probably in a similar situation. So the, the first part of it. So if, if we start from the beginning, right when I got home, so this is like mid to late September, um, from that point until like the beginning to mid December, I really didn't do anything except sit in the dark and watch Gossip Girl because I couldn't handle doing anything else. Um, and I'm a person, I like to watch sports. I love superhero movies. I love things that are um, like visually stimulating. And I also love to listen to rock and roll music. And so all of those things were not an option. So you take a person who is surrounded by a team and is a student athlete and you take them first, you take them out of that environment. So now I'm at home. Granted, I still have a fantastic support system at home, but now I'm at home away from all of my friends. I'm not playing hockey. I'm not even working out because I can't, I'm not able to read, which is something I love to do. Um, can't watch movies that I like, can't really listen to music the way that I like. So those first few months were horrible. Like some of the worst, probably the worst in my life um, because I was so, I was so deep in this depression of like my career is over and I'm never going to play again that it didn't even occur to me that um, I wasn't able to do all of those other things to distract myself. Um, And I was, really, really angry at the thought that my career was over and that it wasn't my decision and that it wasn't a hockey related injury and that it was because of somebody who was distracted or inconsiderate or whatever it was running a red light. And that made me so furious that I don't think it helped my healing process. Um, so I was angry and I was depressed and anybody who's been either of those things knows that putting them together is not productive, especially when you're trying to heal a brain injury. And so I think, I think the reason that I, I focused so much on the anger was that I knew that if I cried, 
it was going to give me a headache. And that was the last thing I wanted to do was to give myself more of a headache than I already had. Right. So, yeah, the those first few months were were awful. It was it was a, a rotating schedule of very, very depressed because I wasn't exercising. I wasn't doing anything I like to do. I was away from my friends. I was away from my life. It felt honestly like this person, whoever was driving this car, had taken my taken me away from my life. Um, so it was a mix of this depression and just like absolute fury, which is not helpful. Right. I think it's normal to have those those feelings, definitely. But based off of like what I've heard you say, there's been there was a lot of focus on the things that you couldn't do. Yeah. And based off of the interviews that I have done, you know, over the past almost 100 episodes, that's one of the things that come up is like when you have an injury, you know, like this or a lot of like my spinal cord injury people, they say yeah. like you you can't focus on what you can't do because you're, you're yeah. just always going to be miserable. Um, so to the people out there listening, don't do what we did. I did that. I did what you did for six, seven years, you know, focus yeah. on what, what I couldn't do. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, but it's, did, it's really, it's really hard to, to focus on anything except that in the initial aftermath of an injury like that, because all you think is what would I be doing if I wasn't sitting at home in the dark? Right. And again, for me, it was like, my only distraction was Gossip Girl, and that wasn't enough for me. I love to read, and one of the things that somebody asked me, you know, in the years after was, oh, well, did you get a lot of reading done on your year off? And I was like, um, no, I couldn't really do anything that involved my brain until, like, mid-January. So what did you do? Um, well, I sat in the dark and I listened to very quiet music and my mom and I called it couch surfing. I literally moved from spot to spot on the couch and kept the lights off and the blinds drawn. And it's really difficult in that sort of space to not be like, Hey, I would be at practice right now, or I would be in class right now, or I would be out with my friends right now. Right. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of what I was what the hell was I thinking I had a thought and then it it, it escaped me uh, I'm sure it'll oh no this is what it'll it was come back no I got it I got it so I think tell me if I'm wrong but tell me if uh if some of these feelings come from being like when you're an athlete you're a high achiever I think obviously you're an extreme level of a high achiever by you know valedictorian harvard uh, division one hockey player, like obviously all those things. And when you were in the situation that you were, athletes always want to be getting better at something. And like everything that you were able to do wasn't anything that was necessarily like making you a better hockey player, making you a better student, improving your personal development in any kind of way. And I feel like that's probably might've had something to do with the, the low point that, that you were in. Oh, absolutely. Um, the other really frustrating part about it was, like you say, constantly trying to, to make yourself better. There really isn't a ton you can do with a concussion to make yourself better. Um, as, as an athlete, again, I've had injuries from head to toe. I sprained my ankle, broke my finger, popped my shoulder out a number of times. Those are all things where you can rehab. You can actively go about making yourself feel better. And even if it's not actually 
doing anything. You feel like, okay, I'm focused on healing this. And with concussion, there are, there are things you can do. And there are, you know, all kinds of treatments that are coming around now that people are realizing are helpful, but there isn't like a, there isn't any set protocol that works for everybody. You know, when you, when you break your arm, they put you in a cast or they operate on it to fix it. You wait X number of weeks, they take the cast off, you start rehabbing. There's a clear progression of what you're supposed to be doing and feeling at any particular point in that rehab. And the hard thing about a concussion, at least in my opinion, is that there's no blueprint for what it's going to look like to get back to whatever your normal is or whatever your life was. And that, again, for somebody like me who is who was an athlete growing up with structure where you know, okay, I've got class from eight to four. I have an hour to get my homework done. I eat, I go to practice, I come home, I go to bed. It's really hard when all of a sudden there's this thing thrown at you and all of your routines and all of your structure goes literally out the window. And even if you want to keep your structure, you can't because it's too taxing on your brain. And so the really frustrating part is how do I give myself the structure and how do I find my way to get better, even though there's no sort of universally accepted path to it? That was really well put. Yeah, I just like those are the things like you don't even think about, but you're 100% right. Did yeah. anyone tell you like straight out like when you ha- after the car accident that yeah you, you like can't play hockey anymore? Um, I had one one of my doctors advised that after you know this was my third really serious concussion that if I don't get to a point where I feel like I'm 100% that I probably shouldn't play, but I didn't have anybody who said, you know, that's it, your career's done. Um, the same doctor said to me, if you decide to play hockey again and you get hit in the head again, I will absolutely put my foot down and that's it. But it was, it wasn't at any point that anybody else said to me, you know, your career's done. It was more of that like internal sort of negative self-talk that, you know, my career's over before it really even started and all that kind of happy stuff. <laughs> right. Hey, I was one of those athletes too, with the negative self-talk and, <laughs> If, if you're listening to this, I have a couple episodes with sports psychologists, so I recommend that you go listen to those too. Yeah. Um, so did you eventually get back on the ice? Yeah, I did. Um, I skated as a, a coach in, I'm going to say January, with, um, with my high school. Um, and then I think in mid-February was the first time I put my equipment on I went out and skated with my goalie coach and I think I was only out there for like 30 minutes and we weren't doing anything. He wasn't shooting at me. It was, it was just put your equipment on, see if you remember, you know, your skates go on before your pads and get on the ice and skate. And it was in a weird way. It was the most fantastic thing that I had ever done, but I also remember getting off the ice after 30 minutes when the practice really started when they started shooting and whatever, and just being so exhausted. And luckily my parents, I think my dad drove me to that skate cause he was like, he was smart enough to say, to, to think to himself, he didn't tell me, but he basically said to me afterwards, like, I knew you were going to be exhausted. You haven't done anything since August. Right. So he was able to sort of help pick up the pieces and drive me home. But, um, yeah, mid-February was the first time that I was back in my hockey equipment, which was a whole new world. 
And speaking of a whole new world, in your uh, article that you wrote on the Concussion Legacy Foundation website, you talked about finding a new normal. So can you talk about how, you know, you, you, you haven't quite gotten back to like what you used to feel like, but you have adjusted since? Yeah. Um, finding a new normal is the single hardest thing that anybody will ever have to do. And I think at some point in everybody's life, you have to sort of struggle with this. But for me, finding a new normal is about realizing that you won't ever be exactly the same but that doesn't mean that you won't ever be good again or great again. Um, and it's a really hard thing to come to terms with at first because um, it feels like you're settling for something that isn't your best. And especially as an athlete, that is the single worst feeling you can have um, is to feel like, oh, well, you know, good enough. This is all I can do. Um, but once you realize that you're not settling, you're readjusting it becomes a lot easier to accept that your new normal can still be great. It's just not going to be comparable to who you were before. Yeah. And it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, but going back to um, the thing about like, you can't compare your yourself to your able-bodied self, you know, like if you, right. if you do that, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. Like you have absolutely. to like exactly kind of like readjust your, your, your thoughts there. Yeah, um, absolutely. So did you eventually get back on the ice with the Harvard hockey team? I did. I eventually came back and uh, played my last three years, and it was uh, it was awesome. I'm I'm really glad that I was that I was able to to heal enough to be able to play because that was um, it was it's something obviously that I loved, but it was also something again that gave me structure and gave me order, and more importantly, it gave me people that, you know, I wouldn't have found otherwise. And I, I'm so, so lucky that I was able to get back on the ice. And I think that that comes back to my advisor saying to me, go home and take care of this so that you can come back and be who you want to be. Right. Instead of continuing to push and push and push until the point where you're broken. Yeah. Which is what I did. Uh, so how did you stay like healthy uh, for those three years when you came back to Harvard, like how did you prioritize your, your health? Um, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, the, the structure of what we do as a team. Um, I was very focused and very conscious of, um, not, not necessarily me, but taking care of my teammates and their brain health, because again, there are a lot of them who have had concussions, who had concussions while I was playing. But in terms of staying healthy, I think the most important thing was just being honest with with myself. Um, there were a couple of times that I had to tell our coaches and trainers that I simply had a migraine and couldn't practice. And again, it's a shitty feeling, but if I had gone out to play those couple of days when you're not all there, that's the most dangerous thing you can do. And that puts you at such a risk that it's not worth it. Exactly. Like sit out for one practice and you can still play, you know, the next day. But if you play through something like that, that's when you you can either end your career. That's That's when you get injured. That's when you get run over, you know, when you're not all there and you're not locked in. Because again, when you're playing at a high level, things move very quickly. And if you're not all there and your reaction time isn't where it should be and you're focused on other things, that's when you get hurt. Right. 
Uh, I'm curious about the goalie position in general. Is there like I know like there's a culture of toughness in hockey, undoubtedly, um, which you can see in uh, the Ice Guardians uh, documentary. Not that I'm. I have no affiliation to this documentary at all. We, I just feel like it's... It was awesome. It was absolutely fantastic. I would recommend anybody listening to go and watch it. Yeah, if you got a Netflix account, it's, it's easy. Yeah. Um, but is there like a separate goalie culture? Because I feel like you guys are kind of isolated as it is. And, you know, I was just thinking like you guys have all these pads and stuff like that. So like is there m- more pressure to play injured, like through injuries? Because it's like why are you hurt when you have like... You're basically in like a bombshell type thing. Like, I don't know. Um, uh, that's a really good question. I don't know that there's necessarily more of a of a like a, a subculture aspect to it. But I think the difference, the main difference between the position as a goalie and the position as a forward or a defenseman is, as a goalie, there are two, three at most, four of you on a team, and Whereas the forward position, yes, there are always going to be, you know, your top three. There's a lot more rotation. And in any given game, if you have 12 forwards, there's a chance that all 12 will see the ice. As a goalie, more often than not, it's only one goalie that ever sees the ice in a game. So the the issue, not the issue, the, the thought process really comes down to, am I so hurt that I can't play um, and do I really want to give up my opportunity and let somebody else get in there? And I hope that our team wins because you always want your team to win. But if the coach all of a sudden turns and thinks that kid's going to give us a better opportunity to win, then there goes your, your opportunity. Like the, the goalie position isn't like a defenseman or a forward where, you know, you have a bad shift, you sit one and you go back out there. If, you're a starting goalie and you play badly, there's somebody who's going to get the next game most, most often. And that's a really, really scary thing to hang over your head. And, um, it's not, it's not necessarily always a bad thing because the other goalies are the only ones who really get it. Um, but it definitely, it definitely influences the way that you think about injury. That's for sure. That's an interesting uh, – it's a great answer to the question. Uh, it's definitely interesting with the, the shift concept because you're right. Like usually the goalie never never leaves. So that's like yeah. an opportunity where someone else could shine one day and then you're left in the uh, Yeah, left, you're left, left on, the bench. on the bench, yeah. which is has that, has that ever happened to you? Um, no, it hasn't. I spent – so most of my career in college um, – I was the third goalie, so the sitting on the bench part has happened to me. Um, but I've never had the um, the you know somebody else plays because you're injured or you know you the coach just decides it's not your day, right? And you know all of a sudden you're you're out of it. So, all right. So, what has your transition to life after sports been like when you don't have that structure like you didn't have when you were at home away from school and stuff like that? So, how have you kind of uh, transitioned? So my transition was actually fairly seamless for, I mean, especially in comparison to, you know, some of my friends who have, you know, gone from being elite athletes to, you know, now we're just regular people. Um, I, uh, 
I had something to look forward to in the fact that I got a job offer to work with the Sports Innovation Lab in um, January. So that was before our, se- our season even ended. Um, and I think for any athlete who is listening, you you should never take for granted that you're playing. But, but at the same time, thinking about your future is not selfish. It's something that you have to do. Um, and giving yourself something to look forward to is hugely important so that when the time comes, when your season and your career ends, like for us, it was, it was mid February. It was the first time in my career that we hadn't made the playoffs. And that was sort of, it was a shock for all of us for sure. But I think the people who had sort of a a plan and a structure and an idea of what was next, um, had an easier time with it. And again, the, the structure thing is something I've had to build into my life so that I'm not all over the map because anybody with a brain injury knows that structure is really important in terms of just keeping your, your organization of your life together. Um, so I've had to create the structure for myself where I go to the gym before I go to work and I come home, I make myself dinner and my lunches for the next day. I have to set the coffee pot before I go to bed so that when I get up in the morning, it's ready, you know, things like that. It's, um, it's about finding what works for you and creating that structure so that you feel like you've got it together as much as humanly possible. Cool. It sounds like you definitely have it together more so than I do. (laughs) Well, well, that remains to be seen. (laughs) Uh, so what kind of stuff do you guys do at the sports innovation lab? So we're a, a market research and consulting firm for, um, sports and technology businesses. So we help our clients make, um, buy or build decisions. And so what I'm focused on is any sort of broadcast media. So that's anything from, uh, camera technology to video compressors and coders, statistical overlays, um, data tracking on players to virtual reality and augmented reality and, um, streaming applications, OTT, that sort of thing. That's so really we're, cool stuff. we're interested in, in the technology that is changing sports. Really cool. It's yeah. like all, all spectrums too. Like it's like performance-based and like the non-performance side too, it sounds like. Yep. Yep, really, absolutely. Really cool. Uh, what advice do you have for athletes in terms of career longevity? In terms of career longevity? Um, I think my biggest piece of advice would be to not neglect your mental health just because it doesn't show on the outside. Um, you can't perform academically, athletically, socially, or in any other aspect of your life if you don't take care of your mental health. And I think as athletes, we get really, really good at taking care of our physical bodies because that's essentially our tool to perform at the thing that we love. But oftentimes we neglect the thing that controls our body and that controls everything that we do. Um, and so I think that taking care of your brain, whether it's injured or not, is the most important thing that you can do. How did you, how did you take care of your brain or how, how do you deal with, like take care of your mental health now or, and as an athlete? Uh, I was really lucky to have some, fantastic teammates along the way um who made sure that even when you know how you doing oh i'm fine 
that they knew me well enough to know when fine was actually fine and when fine was please leave me alone there's something wrong and I don't want to talk about it and they were smart enough to be persistent about it and both implore me to seek help from like the mental health services on campus and also just to talk about it a lot of the time makes a huge difference um and I also owe a lot of my mental health to my older brother Max um he is (laughs) first of all he's my best friend but he also is a fantastic listener and so he was also a college athlete he was a baseball player so anytime I had an issue or I was feeling you know I'm never going to play again or I'm struggling academically or you know I want to go out tonight but I know I have three tests this week he was a great resource to listen and to help me navigate pretty much my whole life um but I think the most important thing is finding somebody who you can be completely honest with and it's it's a tough thing to do because it's it makes you vulnerable and a lot of athletes don't thrive in vulnerability we're used to being strong and we're used to being overachievers and all those things and there's something to be said for being able to find a person whether it's a teammate or a parent or a sibling or uh, a psychiatrist a psychologist somebody who you can drop your sort of facade of the tough guy because I think that's what we all sort of want to be and just be totally honest about I'm I'm struggling and I didn't really find that until my sophomore year so after my year off was that was the point in my life where I really realized that um asking for help and admitting that you're struggling don't make you weak and I wish I had known that as a freshman because it would have saved me a lot of tearful nights where I was like, there's something wrong with me. I can't do this. And again, hindsight is twenty twenty, And so you realize sort of after the fact that everybody's going through it, but nobody wants to talk about it. And so finding that person or people to sort of not even for advice purposes, just simply to be able to, talk about what you're feeling is incredibly, incredibly helpful. And it, it relieves so much of the stress. It feels like you're sharing the burden for lack of a better word, which again, it's not, it's not a burden. People, um, I've found think that talking about their mental health and saying that they're struggling, they often feel like they're being a burden to their friends, but you never, I've never come across a person who was like, you know, when you told me X, Y, Z thing, it was really, you know, weighed me down and was, you know, affecting my life. Those aren't the people who are your friends. You got to find people who will share the burden, whatever your burden happens to be at that particular point. That was amazing. That whole entire uh, (laughs) explanation of career longevity, you touched on toughness, you touched on, you know, post-concussion syndrome, being vulnerable, all that stuff. That that was awesome. Uh, so where can people find you on social media just to wrap up uh, our interview here? I'm on Twitter um, at Bomber37, B-A-U-M-E-R, 37. 37 uh, is my favorite number. Hey, look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, Molly Tissenbaum. Um, I think that's it. On the I, got in- rid of my, I got rid of my Instagram recently because I felt like I was spending too much time on my phone and wanted to sort of look up at the world a little more often, so... Um, I got rid of that, but yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Cool. Instagram is definitely very distracting. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of endless scrolling and it was just, it was too much time. 
Well, that was a mature decision. I have not made that. Dec- <laughs> I kind of, I kind of need so Instagram for my podcast. So yeah, I well, and that was so that was the the sort of tough thing for me was that I want to be on on Instagram for you know stuff like this. If I'm I'm helping out with uh, an organization called the Butterfly Cares, which is essentially doing the same sort of stuff that you're doing with you know concussion awareness and um, traumatic brain injury, and we're trying to sort of eliminate the stigma of I have a concussion or I have brain trauma. Um, and so getting myself off of that was one of those things where I was like humming and hawing about it. I didn't know if I should, but it was good. Again, it was for my own mental health and that initially felt like a selfish decision, but it was something that had to happen. All right. So okay, what was that called again? The butterfly what? The butterfly cares. Okay. Can you give that a plug so people listening can take a look at that? Yeah, so we're on Facebook. Um, it's you literally just search Butterfly Cares. Um, we're putting putting plans in together in, into motion to build an app for people with concussions to help them find treatment and find other people in their community who are either supporters or who are also suffering. Um, so essentially, our idea is we're trying to build an online community to help heal um, brain trauma. And so, like I said, finding people who understand can be the most comforting thing in the world. And it really helps in the healing process. And if we can help people find, you know, somebody who's local who, you know, can go for a walk and listen for 10 minutes, that if we can help even even a handful of people, that'll mean that, you know, what you and I suffered through is not for, for not, for lack of a better word. For sure. Molly, thanks so much. I'm going to link all that up in the show notes. And I really appreciate you taking the time on a early Sunday morning to, <laughs> to do this. Uh, obviously, I struggled in the beginning. <laughs> Uh, trying to wake my brain up, but it was great talking yeah, to no you. Yeah, no worries. That, that, it, hey, it's a, it's a post-concussion thing. I get it. It yeah. happens. Hey, you, can, you always have that excuse, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Molly. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.